Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome. I'm Dr. David DeRose. It's great to have you with us for today's edition of the broadcast. My guest today is someone who is actually generating a lot of interest throughout Indian country and beyond. His name is Dr. Jeff Kegaris. Jeff, it is great to have you with us on today's edition of our program. Dr. David, it's great to be with you. Jeff, you've been doing some exciting stuff, and uh, you are actually in the center of one of the administrative districts for Indian country. You're there in the Nashville area. Uh, tell us a little bit about what uh, you keep busy with. Sure. I've got a few things going on. Most importantly, I practice as an optometrist. We have two practices here in the Nashville area. I have uh, vision therapy practices where we specialize in kids and reading and learning, as well as traumatic brain injury rehabilitation and sports vision. And I've got a training institute that we educate doctors and other healthcare practitioners on how to improve the care to patients. And we just recently wrote a book that was published in August, my wife and I, which is called One Patient at a Time, the K2 Way Playbook for Healthcare and Business Success. So uh, in my spare time, I love sports. Okay. Well, they're back up and running. We're recording this in September of 2020. Our lead time on our shows is about a month. So uh, those of you tuning into today's broadcast, uh, Jeff and I were sitting down in the middle of September to give you a little bit of uh, perspective on timing. The year is 2020. And Jeff, uh, one of the big topics I know in the world of eye health has been something impacting our children, our kids, whether we're in the heart of Indian country, whether we're on a reservation, whether we're in an urban area, whether we're native or not, kids are in a different learning environment in many places, and it's using a lot of virtual technology, a lot of online stuff. I've heard a lot of discussion about eye impact of these devices. Can you, as an optometrist, actually shed some real light on the subject? We'll be glad to do so. Uh, the first thing is it's important for us as parents to know that when we typically think about our kids' vision, we say, hey, can you see that billboard there? What about the TV? We're looking at something far away. But when we look at the computer, when we read, when we look at things up close, near vision involves a completely different set of systems. So distance vision, where our eyes are chill and relaxed. But when we look up close, we have to use convergence. That involves muscles. We have to use focusing like a trombone in and out that involves muscles. And we have this thing called the blink rate. We tend to stare up close when we're looking at something. Particularly, we stare if we're interested. We stare when we're looking up close a lot. And so our eyes can become drier. We think about lubrication and other issues. So with all three of those main factors that are affecting our near vision, it's more likely that we have fatigue and breakdown in some of those systems and more problems when we're in that environment. This is sobering stuff, and I know there's been a lot of discussion, too, about how these uh, devices can impact sleep, uh, you know, especially uh, a lot of attention with, with kids and, and their sleeping habits, especially with these devices. And, you know, there were parents who might have been keeping the tablets or the laptops away from the kids later in the day, but now, hey, mom, I, I got to finish my homework, you know, I got to be online. Is that really a concern or has that been overplayed? 
Uh, I think it's a concern for some more than others. We know that the high energy blue and purple wavelengths coming out of digital screens, out of computers, our iPhones, et cetera, just like you said, can disrupt sleep patterns and other type of rhythms. It definitely has an effect on eyes. The objective side of that is if we expose retinal cells long-term to high energy blue light, purple, if you will, then the retinal cells degenerate at a faster rate. So objectively, mm -hmm. we know it's a problem. Subjectively, some of my patients are extremely affected by their phones being too close to their bed or sleep patterns and all the other things that you mentioned. Those people tend to benefit the most, in my experience, from blue light protection, the blue filters on glasses, et cetera. Keep in mind that those blue purple filters on glasses that we add nearly universally now only cut out 30% of the high energy wavelengths. So they're helpful. I will tell you subjectively, some of my patients come back and go, oh, this is not just kids, but adults and say, oh, this is so much more relaxing. I just feel like I could work longer without my eyes being tired. And other people will say, eh, I don't know. I don't know that I noticed a big difference. The subjective response is variable. In general, I feel it's a can't hurt, likely helps situation. I mean, this is a really interesting uh, subject, Jeff. And I know a lot of folks, like you mentioned, they're tuned into this concern about the blue wavelengths. But I think a lot of us have heard about things, sunglasses. We've, we've gotten all worried about whether it's UVA, UVB, both. How are these things rated? Is there the danger if someone walks in and gets a cheap uh, pair of these glasses that they may be doing more harm than good? Or is it pretty safe any kind of a blue light filter you're going to be doing yourself a, a service? I think the question is, in the best blue light filters, we're cutting out about 30% of the high energy wavelengths. So anybody can say, and the blue spectrum is kind of large. So it depends on what true wavelengths are being blocked. I mean, like with anything, you can get um, high value products. You can get somebody that says, well, yeah, we're cutting out blue, but it's, you know, it's a yellow lens or mm. they're all very, very different. Uh, I don't, I have not seen any evidence that it's going to hurt people unless something else goes along with it. Like the optics are distorted. Mm. You know, if you get something too inexpensive, They've slapped on poor optics, and you may block a little bit of blue, but you've now complicated it with bad optics. And you brought up a really good point. If I tell parents this, if you have a choice and you can put your child in blue blocking glasses for the computer or put them in sunglasses for outside, you're going to get far more blue light exposure from 15 minutes outside than you will all day long on the computer. So mm. I choose the sunglasses. Okay. Okay. Very good point. And so do you have any recommendations on if someone does say, hey, you know, I want to get a filter for my device. I want to get a filter for my uh, glasses. Do you recommend working through an optometrist or other uh, eye care professional? Yeah, I think uh, that's an important thing. When we get into eye health and vision issues, um, pediatricians provide a valuable service and we work with them really closely here, refer back and forth all the time. And they do a nice vision screening, but it doesn't substitute for an optometrist or ophthalmologist providing a full eye health and vision exam, particularly when it comes to these near vision needs. Um, those people are also more likely to recommend certain products that are the high energy wavelength or blue blocking, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, type of products. So I will tell you, we carry some that are over the counter and some that are prescribed and we probably sell an even number of both. It's just a matter of we, we think they're, we've got a good over-the-counter product and we've got good 
RXable, if you will, products. And they're all, I think, helpful for the right person. So it's not that you have to buy the most expensive to get any benefit. So let me see if I'm distilling this uh, correctly, uh, Dr. Kegarese. Folks are listening today, whether they're an adult, a grandparent, whether they're a parent, a child, they're listening to this discussion. And what I'm taking away from it, so I'm just checking myself, is that if I want to really care for my eyes optimally, if I'm working on a screen much, I probably want to invest in some kind of a blue light filter, whether it's on glasses, whether it's on the device. Am I hearing that right? I think that is correct. Okay. And the take-home message part of it is that that is actually being easier on those sensitive cells in the retina, in the back of the eye. Is that uh, pretty much the message? That's exactly right. There's an objective protection factor, and then there's a subjective less fatigue factor. But don't be surprised if you happen to be one of those people that says, well, I guess I'm getting a protection factor, but I really don't notice a big difference in my fatigue. Some people don't get as much subjective improvement. Some people write me letters about how great that lens was that you recommended. It made such a difference. Okay. Well, this is uh, really helpful information. As we're thinking about our kids, as we're thinking about some of the challenges in education today with distance learning and virtual learning, as an optometrist, what other kind of issues are you running up against when it comes to this area? I think the biggest things are that getting back to the systems we talked about, it's not uncommon for us to see convergence issues because the focusing system and the convergence system work together and they lock on to a certain distance. And what that can do is that in and of itself will cause fatigue. I mean, I, I got strong enough to hold my arm up like this, but if you ask me to do that for a long period of time, I'm either going to get a cramp or more likely it's going to give out. Mm -hmm. And what that causes visually are fluctuations in vision, blur, clear, blur, clear, maybe even very, very subtle. And a, and a lot of that is just from constant um, use or fatigue that is induced. So one of the things we recommend to break that cycle is a real simple rule. You know, I'm not that smart, so I got to have some pretty simple things to do. And the first one is a 20-20 rule. As an eye doctor, every 20 minutes, look away from the screen, look at something far away for 20 seconds. Okay. What that does is that allows our eyes to relax and chill and break that fatigue of the muscle. And then I can look back. The other thing I recommend when you do that 20, 20 rule, every 20 minutes, 20 seconds, look away is to blink hard twice. Hmm. What the blink hard twice does is it squeezes the oil glands within the eyelids that, hmm. that produce a very, very valuable component to the tear that keeps them from drying out, from evaporating. And those oil glands need to be worked. And if we are staring at the screen, as you and I probably are doing and looking at each other as we talk, mm -hmm. um, you know, that those oil glands need to be worked and that will assist from the comfort level short term, but also from a protection factor of, for dry eyes later on, which is another long term concern for us in some of the things that we're seeing in the clinic. Well, I really appreciate that. I've had some issues just lately with my eyelids, uh, you know, getting some of those little styes and things there and you got me thinking, well, maybe it's because I've been uh, doing all these virtual meetings and I got to be blinking my eyes more. Is that a good take-home point for me? It is. And as simple as that is, we, we see that that's a big issue. You know, we used to see, <clears throat> we check the oil glands and the ability for them to express the fluid naturally just every time we blink. And what we see typically is somewhere around the 40s to 60s, a little more in females than males. Some of those glands are blocked 
up, they're only slightly releasing fluid or completely blocked on a chronic basis. If mm. they block on an acute basis, that's when you get those styes you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But some of those people don't get styes necessarily, or they get them sometimes, but we'll look under the microscope and see lots of blockages. So they're not secreting good fluid. That's a step towards eventually those glands involute and just don't express anything. They wow. atrophy, they go away. The reason I bring that up is that that's something we can manage, can be problematic for people, but we are seeing in, our, in many teenagers, glands, atrophy, blockage, poor tear fluid exchange, like we typically used to see in 40 to 50 year olds. Wow. And so we know that that's a, an issue now that we're addressing a little earlier. We're concerned about those that are non-symptomatic, asymptomatic. And what are they going to be like when they're in their 30s and 40s? Are we going to have this endemic of really dry eye issues? Because once you lose those glands, you don't get them back. Mm. Well, this is sobering stuff, but th simple things, whether it's a filter, whether it's blinking the eyes, whether it's this 20-20 rule, every 20 minutes look for 20 seconds at something in the distance. This is really practical stuff, uh, Dr. Jeff. You've got a book as well. We're going to speak more about it in the next segment. But for those who may not be able to stick by for the whole show, your book really is uh, is moving beyond what we're speaking about so far in this first segment. Give us just a little introduction to the book. Mention its title again and then give us a little overview. Sure. Thank you. Jeff um, and I wrote a book called One Patient at a Time because that's the way I feel like each patients should feel every time they have any healthcare experience. There may be systems built to take care of a lot of people but I want respect, I want courteous service, I want a good experience and a one-to-one -one relationship with my healthcare provider. I think in all of the medicine that we talk about and all of the public discourse and discussion of, well, we have to have good access to care, we have to have good value. What's lost is the other third leg on that stool, which is what about the interaction? What about how do I interact with my provider? And most importantly, how does that provider treat me? Powerful, uh, powerful stuff, Jeff. I know that uh, this is something that really gets me going, too, because I see so much among other providers, and hopefully not myself, of not really treating people the way they need to be treated. We want to talk more about treating you right when it comes to your eyes, things that you can do, some really exciting stuff about traumatic brain injury and how that impacts your vision. That's coming up in our next segment with Dr. Jeff Kegaris. Don't go away. I'm Dr. David DeRose. More right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at AIANL.org. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, AIANL.org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. For 13 and one half years, I was the victim of severe child abuse. I was being beaten, cursed, and deprived of any kind of love and care. It was a big secret. Children are born to be loved, not to be abused. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. 
but these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. I'm Andrew Saul, Commissioner of Social Security. I'm here to warn you about telephone scammers pretending to be government employees. Some of these scammers may say threatening things like you will be arrested if you don't make payments or provide personal information. Do not fall for these tricks. These calls are not from us. Real Social Security employees will never threaten you for information or money. If you receive a call like this, hang up. Never give the caller your personal information, like your Social Security number or bank account, or send money in any form, cash, gift cards, wire transfers, or prepaid debit cards. Report the call to our law enforcement arm, the Office of the Inspector General at oig.ssa.gov. Share this information with your friends and family. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to our show today. Dr. Jeff Kageris is with me today, helping us understand some of the nuances of vision. We've begun by speaking about our children and preserving their vision, especially in these challenging times. Jeff, one of the things, I'll just be honest with you, that I've appreciated about optometrists over the years, and you know, a lot of people in medical circles, you know, they end up comparing the ophthalmologists, you know, the MDs and DOs who have the specialty eye training with the optometrists like yourself, who have the specialty training in the discipline of eye health. And one of the things, I'll just be honest with you, I've always appreciated about the optometrists, is it seems like you guys have been on the forefront of telling people what they could do for their eyes, talking a lot about exercising the eyes, things like this, that I sometimes, I've had a lot of great ophthalmologists I've worked with over the years. doesn't seem like I've heard that messaging as much from them. So thank you for emphasizing some of the things we can do for ourselves. What about the parents, the the elders, the grandparents, aunties, uncles that are looking out on young kids that are doing the virtual learning? Are there red flags that they should be watching for as far as this virtual environment that a lot of kids are finding themselves in? Great great question. First, the setup are a couple of simple things, and and that's going to be be observant. Uh, It doesn't mean you have to be there all the time, but one of the things that's important is first to set the child up for more success, and that is that the screen should be at or below the horizon. Our eyes are better designed to work in down gaze hmm. than they are in up gaze. So if the screen is higher, they can see it, but it's more fatiguing. So uh, we talked about the 2020 rule, 20, every 20 minutes, 20 seconds, talked about squeezing the eyes and blinking. If everything's set up well, and uh, what we typically see is that children don't always say, oh, I'm blurry, I can't see it. They may have different postural changes a little bit of leaning on my hand like this. Sometimes it's even to close one eye because they have subtle double vision or they avoid it. The real common issue is avoiding. If something is not clear, not in sync up close, 
then what am I going to do? I don't want to look at that for very long. So I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to look away and be distracted. Mm -hmm. And so avoidance or distraction, which can often be mislabeled as an attention deficit, could very well be a near vision issue. Wow. This is fascinating stuff, Jeff. And uh, I know your new book is dealing more with the mechanics of patient care, encouraging patients to expect to be treated as an equal, if you will, with the doctor. Uh, Doctors uh, may have more training in the discipline people are seeing them for, but that doesn't make us any better than anyone else. And I know you're communicating that message in the book. Is there anything in your new book, the one patient at a time, that would especially speak to this issue of kids and uh, pediatric uh, vision health? I think just kids are in a bit of a different subcategory. So as you know, I mean, you have a same but a little bit of a different approach when you're going to see a child making it friendly. Mm -hmm. You realize that, hey, this is a seven-year-old, not a 17-year-old, not a 77-year-old, and you need to customize the way you do what you do for those particular patients, if you will. So it all kind of goes back to the, uh, do I treat my patient as one at a time, or do I just say, this is my system, everybody gets the same thing, and I don't vary depending upon the 77-year-old versus the seven-year-old, so... I think one of the most sobering things, uh, Jeff, to change gears a little bit to another area I know you have a special interest in and a special expertise in, I know one of the huge concerns that we have throughout Indian country and just be honest with you, throughout the world is this whole subject of traumatic brain injury. You mentioned earlier in the show, you know, you being a, a real diehard uh, sports fan. There's been so much that's been spoken about on that area when it comes to traumatic brain injuries, whether we're talking about contact sports or something that we would think is not a contact sport like soccer. I mean, we're hearing a lot about this subject, uh, motor vehicle accidents. Why would an optometrist, first of all, get involved in this very, you know, really complex uh, brain health uh, area? Because I care. And second of all, because there's a need. This whole area of this general category of traumatic brain injury is all the way from, like you said, motor vehicle accidents to sports-induced concussions to Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, uh, any neurologic disorder that can affect so many of the muscles in the processing. Remember that the eyes are one of the 12 cranial nerves. It happens to be an extension of the brain. We just happen to be able to see the brain when we look in the eyes, and we also can see in some ways how that brain is functioning. And so there's a lot of crossover from much of the therapy that may be needed in children. I always tell parents, I can make you optically see well that tree out there and it comes back and it focuses in the, an, an object on the occipital, the back part of my brain. But you know, from here to the frontal part where I'm going to interpret what I see, it should be a highway. Hmm. But a lot of times in kids, especially young males, we see oh, I'm going to go to that rest area and I'm going to take this byway and I'm going to stop here for a sandwich. And it's a long process. And so we have really clear optics, but the processing is affected. That's really what's happening in a traumatic brain injury. We have stretched neurons and our, I can see it back here, but interpreting it and having it connect to the rest of my body, boy, we see those neurons are reconfigured and we need to get them back in sync with each other. So there's a lot of crossover in the therapy for both. Yeah, I mean, this is a fascinating area, and of, of course, a lot of lay people, they think, well, you know, your vision is your eyes, but they don't always stop to think about that important brain component, like you mentioned, in the occipital lobe there in the back of the brain, and I remember some years ago now, and you've probably, you know, read of this, I think his name was Michael May, pretty famous case of a guy who 
lost his vision at a very young age. I think it was some kind of freak uh, chemical accident. He was, you know, playing with something when he was like two. And uh, as a result, his occipital lobe really wasted away at, you know, we say medically it atrophied or shrunk down. And when years later, he was able to uh, get some stem cell therapy, regenerate his retina, although his eyes seemed to work pretty well, his brain just couldn't process those details. And so this whole dimension of basically seeing with your eyes, but also seeing with your brain, I think it's uh, something a lot of folks don't think about, but you're really making it very practical for us. So no matter how good my eyes are after an accident, if I've had some severe damage, especially to that back part of my brain, I'm going to be struggling, aren't I? Very definitely. And what we see that the best candidates for traumatic brain injury rehabilitation uh, have have had it for a couple of months. Obviously, at the very beginning, first week, second week, we want rest. But what we're really looking at, most patients will improve over some time. We're really looking at the patients that are, say, about 30% of traumatic brain injury patients will have continued residual difficulties. And they're not, I can't see clearly, uh, after about, say, two to three months. Those are the people that we can really help. And then we want to be intensive in our in our therapy and our understanding. Those are people that have symptoms, uh, David, like I can't walk into a big box store. It's just overwhelming. Uh, mm. the, the fluorescent lights and everything is just, everything's coming at me too fast. Similar, can't drive down the highway anymore. It's like, I can't kind of connect my vision to where I am in space. So there are spatial issues. Reading certainly affected, vestibular affected. The number one sign that is common after a traumatic brain injury is a vision issue. It's called convergence insufficiency. Hmm. Those muscles, those nerves, the inability to converge where I did before, I can only converge to there. 56% of people after a traumatic brain injury have a telltale sign of convergence insufficiency. So that's why vision is a really important thing to consider in addition to occupational therapy, physical therapy, neurology. It's a multidisciplinary approach. So this convergence insufficiency, does that mean they're going to have problems, especially doing things up close, or what are they going to notice? Absolutely. Absolutely. They're going to basically say, much like a child that has convergence insufficiency or the muscles got weak, they say, I can't see at this distance. I can't read. Hmm. Uh, I have to hold it way out here. Or they might not even try that. They just go, I used to be able to see this and concentrate. Now I can't concentrate anymore. And it's because the muscles need two pounds of strength but they're only putting out one pound of strength anymore. And so that needs to be diagnosed. And that is a very easy way, whether it's with lenses or with some therapy, physical therapy for the eyes to improve that convergence at the right time. So we hate to see people who said, ever since I fell on the deck of a ship two years ago, I just haven't been able to read. We actually have very good technology that not only with the optometrist or ophthalmologist can check how the muscles are working, but we have technology that in five minutes can track the eyes and see how they're converging while you're reading, follows the right eye, the left eye, as you can see visually what the eyes are doing as they track, which is another thing that we typically see tracking problems with the eyes, the ability to have these smooth muscles go across, but also the quick muscles that allow us to read fast. We need both of those working. Traumatic brain injury disrupts those a lot. This is really fascinating stuff. And as I'm listening to you, Jeff, I mean, some of this is new to me, even though I've dealt with people over the years with traumatic brain injuries. 
one of the things that, uh, as I'm listening, I'm saying, wow, you know, some of these things that you're describing, I might have said, well, it sounds like this person may be having some post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, you know, with feeling overwhelmed, feeling they can't handle, like getting behind the wheel again if they were in a car accident. But some of these could actually be vision issues, huh? Very definitely. Very definitely. Ocular motor visual issues a lot of the time. Prescription may not have changed. Wow. But I'm not functioning the same. So bottom line, someone's having vision problems, they're overwhelmed with sensory input on the visual front. If they've had a traumatic brain injury, find somebody like you, somebody working with eye health in individuals who've had traumatic brain injury. That's correct. It's a very growing area of eye care, in particular in in optometry. So there should be somebody in most areas that can be consulted or referred to. Thanks so much, Jeff. We do have to step away just briefly. I'm Dr. David DeRose. You're listening to a show that is designed to speak to you throughout Indian country and beyond. We'll be back with more on today's edition of the program right after this. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. The most negative thinking in my childhood was the things said to me. I felt like I was a bag of garbage waiting to go to the dump. Please, moms and dads, put a watch on your mouth as you relate to your children. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for youth. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs and dangerous things like metals into your body. And nicotine, which can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping. Because when you talk, they hear you. Learn more at underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to today's edition of the show. I'm Dr. David DeRose, Dr. Jeff Kager. Boy, Jeff, I'm having a hard time getting that name. Help me out again. Agorist, but you can just say Dr. Jeff. That works. Yeah, no, that's, that's what I've been sticking with, but I like to give that full <laughs> name, Kegaris. In my defense, spell your name so some of my listeners can feel like, oh boy, that is kind of tough. It looks always very confusing. We can always tell when we go to the physician because they come to the door and they go, and there's this long pause, like they can't pronounce it. So it's Keg Arise is the way it's spelled. K-E-G-A-R-I-S-E, but pronounced Kegaris. Okay, kegaris. So, so you folks that are struggling with the uh, kegarize, kegaris, if you're looking at the information that I may have sent to your affiliate station, and by the way, it's a great time to mention this. We do send out a program description to all the networks that carry American Indian and Alaska Native Living programming uh, or other programming that we do throughout uh, indigenous groups. Bottom line, 
call the station if you're wondering about the great guests that I had. And uh, their network likely has that information, whether they passed it along to that local affiliate or not. Having said all that, what I want to tell you right now is that uh, Dr. Kegaris is going to help us try to appreciate something that, uh, well, uh, I'll tell you, if you're a healthcare provider, it's uh, easy to slip off the radar screen. I find uh, too many times we treat patients less than we would like to be treated ourselves. And uh, let me just illustrate that with an example. I'm uh, doing telemedicine right now at a clinic that I've worked in for a number of years. A lot of demand for telemedicine because of this uh, uh, pandemic that we're dealing with. And uh, fellow just talked with a few days ago. I'm introducing myself. I'd never met him. I'm covering for his uh, provider. And he says, uh, you know, I'm really upset about uh, this phone visit. And I'm going like, well, what's the problem? He said, well, I had a in-clinic visit and I called just to double check yesterday and they said my provider's on vacation. No one let me know. So they had scheduled this in advance. No one called me. I would have showed up and my provider would not have been there. And he says, is this how this clinic, you know, deals with their patients? Doesn't, you know, just changes their uh, their schedule and doesn't let them know. So I don't know what actually happened in that scenario, but it's it's too frequent that sometimes uh, people are not valued as you would just uh, a family member. And Jeff, I don't know if that's one of the themes you've built on in the K2 way, but you've written a book. You're passionate about this. First speak to my listeners as uh, non-health professionals, and then we'll speak to those who might be health professionals. Yeah, that issue that you deal with or that you just described is all too common. None of us are perfect. We're all going to try to do the right thing, but it takes, I always tell people that patient care is a leadership issue. I talk to doctors and when they say, oh, well, you know, I can't ever get her to, to smile or to greet or look up. That's a leadership issue. People will be reinforced with the things that you feel are important. If you think it's important for your receptionist to be friendly, smiling, greet people in a courteous manner, then that will happen because you're the leader. And that's a drumbeat throughout the system. So if you build all the systems uh, from reception to nurse, medical assistant, technician greeting, to doctor greeting, to doctor summary, to handoffs, uh, all of those issues uh, it's too convenient for us as providers to say, oh, well, that's somebody else's problem. I'm doing my part just right. Uh, we need to have a bigger view of this. My care, quite frankly, and your care, except for telemedicine maybe, is 95% of the time with somebody else in the office, not us. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we have to realize that most of the interactions occur with our staff, providers, and we want to do our part right, permeate organization with a courteous, well, safety first, courteous, experience, efficiency, called a hierarchy of service. So I think patients deserve that. Let's step back through that again. Give me that sequence, this hierarchy of service sequence, if you would, Dr. Uh, Jeff. Yeah. What I, uh, what I always kid, we have staff meeting every week with all the staff and uh, and the newer people might be there. And I may sometimes say, that's the most important thing we can do. And the newer people might say, um, be kind to patients. Uh, make it a great experience. But the people that have been here a while who are really trained in service, say, nope, safety is number one. We have to mm -hmm. provide a safe environment for our patients and for our staff. Now, number two, we have to be courteous. Number three, make it a great experience for the patient. And number four comes efficiency. 
But that doesn't mean that sometimes we have to know our patients and that's for some people, we have to be more efficient on a moment's notice or on a lunch break, et cetera. But I always tell the staff that when you make a decision, if something comes up, there's a debate, a dilemma, and we look through the, how did you handle this? In general, I'm gonna look for, were you safe? Were you courteous? Did you have a, make a great experience? And were you efficient? And in that order, 98% of the time, they're gonna make a right decision if they follow that sequence of how they handle the patient care mm. issue. Well, thanks for that pointer. Definitely well taken by those who are involved in patient care. What about the patient? If they're listening, they're saying, I don't know that this is uh, safe. I don't know that it's courteous. I don't know that it's efficient. What is the patient supposed to do in that scenario? Yeah, I would like to believe that we need to speak up and not just say, well, that's just the way it is. It's the way it always is. I think you need to reward those that are really trying hard. Understand it's a complex system. And so the book is aimed to say there are simple lessons, eight chapters, 135 simple lessons, some are a half a page, some are one page, one and a half pages, easily implementable. Because what I hear from patients are, you know, I, I just wish somebody would greet me when I walk in. So mm -hmm. we have a, a simple lesson on greeting people with a smile and making eye contact. Most of these are say easy, do tough, which is kind of Covey's fourth discipline, which is, why aren't we doing that? Of course, this is easy. Why aren't we doing it well? Uh, because in the busyness of our day, I have two phone calls coming in and I have this patient here and that person over there just called me and uh, how, but, but if you're constantly focused on yes, but that can't disrupt that one patient at a time relationship, then that's a service culture you're building or you have built. And so from a patient standpoint, here are a couple examples, if you'd like, that, that I think bug me and okay. we try to break down. Please do it. Please do it. First of all, there is no waiting room. Waiting room denotes that we expect you to wait. That's mm. patient inventory in a, in a patient flow process. If I see a lot of people in a reception room, then that's inventory. we got a problem with patient flow, perhaps. Reception denotes much more of a greeting. We're glad to have you here. We're going to receive you rather than a sloppy waiting room that has old magazines. And I mean, I think what you have in your reception room is intentional. We used to fine our staff a dollar for every time they would say waiting and our doctors $5 for every time they say waiting so that we would get across the mentality of this is a reception room. Hmm. So that's an important aspect, small one. Okay. Secondly, my dad had cancer, 85 years old, fortunately recovered. Uh, I'm sitting in the, uh, infusion area 25 people in the reception room that have cancer most in wheelchairs feeling like crap mm. and then the rest of us as accompanying family members pushing a wheelchair trying to reassure them trying to keep them warm etc nurse comes to the door johnson you know the typical mm. thing from the door yell i swear three or four of those cancer patients woke up and and it jolted them out of their chair what an improper way what a mm. non-courteous way to greet somebody so one of the things that we stress is we greet the patient at the chair you come up to them and you say david i'm jeff it's nice to meet you i'm going to get you ready to see dr johnson today mm. now we can still do that with masks and six foot distancing social distancing mm -hmm. even in covid times but it's a courteous thing so what's that mean well i, I don't know who that person is how, how will i know well i guess you better build your systems so maybe there's something on the front of the chart that says, um, good looking guy with a brown shirt, you know, or says, you know, orange polo shirt or mm -hmm. woman with a brown handbag. 
to walk up to. We greet the person that's accompanying in the reception room. What a difference from the Johnson looking around like we're all just a bunch of herd of cattle in a waiting room, right? Mm-hmm. Reception room, greet the patient personally like you would at your front door. Simple thing. This is some great stuff, and it's all uh, chronicled in your book, One Patient at a Time, The K2 Way. Have I got that? I know I'm not getting the full uh, subtitle. Help us out there. The K2 Way for Healthcare and Business Success, because a lot of people that read it say, you know, this really isn't just healthcare. This is building a, a good, solid business, whether I'm running a pizza place or I'm running a restaurant or I'm in the financial industry, the banking industry, and we get a lot of consultations from people going, how do you get people to do this? How do you, I notice that this is what I experience. How does that happen? Because they know we try to hire great people, but great people in great systems are really when the one plus one equals three mm-hmm. and the delivery of that is what we're, what we're aspiring to. And we're not perfect. In fact, I'm crazy enough to put a book out that says this is the type of care you should demand and receive at the same time I'm seeing patients. So they might say, hey, Degris, page six, 16, I didn't get this. I want to know about it. It holds us to a higher standard. And I think doctors that care want that challenge. So uh, if someone wants to pick up a copy of the book or maybe even read an excerpt, is that an option? Absolutely. It's on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com, BNN.com, Amazon.com. You can go to the K2Way.com, which is our personal website for my wife, Dr. Susan Kegris, and me. And it's also a way to get a, get a hold of me if you'd if you'd like to, you don't have to be a patient. I'm glad to talk to you as a healthcare provider or as a patient. And maybe uh, if I'm not in your area, that's fine. I'll direct you to people that we might know in that area. But I mean, we're really here to, to help people and particularly to help doctors so that they say, yeah, that is the care I want to provide. But I'm not really sure how to build that, how to do that. And this is a very implementable take two or three, five, seven lessons and go, we're going to concentrate on these step by step. You can improve the care we deliver to our patients, and they deserve it. So I've got this uh, written down here, a website, theK2way.com. Have I got that correct? That's exactly right. And K2 is because both my wife and I are Susan Kegris and Jeff Kegris. She's the much more important and smarter K, by the way, than, uh, than me. But you well, got stuck with me today. Well, I'll tell you, then, you get a lot of credit for uh, marrying someone smarter than you. That's always a good thing to do. <laughs> So the K2Way.com, speaking about optimal patient care experiences. So whether you're a provider, whether you're a patient, uh, I can see value in that kind of material. I appreciate those practical examples. And I'm thinking of folks, whether they're tribal council people, whether they're running a tribal business, whether they're working with tribal services, boy, this stuff would help anybody who's dealing with the public in any way, wouldn't it? Just treating them uh, more compassionately, having better relationships with those you're seeking to serve, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I have two daughters that are uh, both physicians. One's a pediatrician, the other one's in the emergency room. So you would think those are completely disparate. But you know what? Everybody thinks their, their specialty's different. But when you get down to it, 85% to 90% of what we do is very similar even in the emergency department Mm. and in treating pediatric patients, they start going, you know, you're right. How do we greet those people? How do we bring them back? How do we prioritize? How do we say this? What information do we give them then when they leave to to, uh, give them education, et cetera? There are more similarities than differences. And so it doesn't matter the healthcare setting. It's a mentality of how can we do this better? 
Well, great. Jeff, we do have to step away. We've got a final segment coming up. But for those of you that uh, have been enjoying this dialogue, we're going to come back to some important eye health principles, things that will actually interface with things that uh, can make a difference in your business, can make a difference in the educational realm. If you want to pick up Dr. Kegeris's book, it's theK2way.com. We'll probably mention that again in the next segment. But stay by. We'll be right back with more after these messages. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. If child abuse victims don't get counseling or help, they so often become abusers themselves. The victim doesn't make the decisions, they just take the orders. I got help, and so can you. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Shelley Flace with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. If you own firearms, it's your responsibility to make sure they're always stored safely. Hiding them in a closet or drawer is not enough. Kids know where they are. Research shows the risk of injury and death is lower if guns are stored unloaded and locked up with the ammunition locked in a separate place. This is important when children are young as well as when they grow into teenagers. For more, talk with your pediatrician or visit HealthyChildren.org. So I wanted to talk with you and your mom today, Lily, because some people at school have noticed changes going on with you, and we're concerned. Like what? Who? Some of your friends, teachers. It sounds like you've lost interest in a lot of things lately. You're hanging with new friends. So? So, individually, maybe those things are no big deal, but taken together, and then the incident the other day, you were with Derek when he was caught selling marijuana. Yeah, he was selling it. Honey, we know but we care about you and, and want to know what's going on. That's right. We just want to understand better and see how we might help. And if weed is a part of it, we just want to make sure you understand the negative consequences for someone your age, the physical and mental health effects, the poor decision-making, and the confusing legal aspects these days. So what do you say? Can we talk? For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Dr. DeRose back with you for the final segment of today's edition of the program. With me, Dr. Jeff Kegeris. Jeff is an optometrist. He's been telling us, uh, I would say, some really practical things about preserving the health of our own eyes, our children's eyes, dealing with traumatic injuries, and even, that's right, how we should expect to be treated when we walk through the doors of a healthcare provider and what you can do if you're owning a business, if you're running a tribal enterprise, how you can treat people better. Jeff, we've talked on a lot of practical subjects, but I know before we finish, having an eye specialist on the show, folks want to know about some of the latest about things like diabetes and other eye health issues, some of which you know hits folks in Indian country pretty hard. 
Let's talk about diabetes, first of all. And I've just got to tell you a story. Just this week, another patient that I was dealing with uh, via telemedicine, person with diabetes, I'm talking with them about their eyes, and I asked them, when was the last time you saw an eye doctor? And they told me, over 25 years. Why is this a bad idea for somebody with diabetes? Well, you hit on something that's really important that we try to stress, and we also try to stress to all of our internal medicine and family practice colleagues, and then most people are much better about this now, but the problem is that diabetes affects the eyes usually without symptoms, so people don't notice it. I don't hurt. I feel like I'm seeing well. Therefore, I don't need to get checked out, and that can lead to some devastating complications. Diabetes affects, as you know, the vasculature, but particularly the small vasculature in the body. And the only place in the body where we can actually see that without cutting into you is in the eyes. And so we can look at these peripheral vasculature areas or these small capillary areas, and we can see early changes even before they cause a vision loss. When we do lose vision from diabetes, usually related to chronic A1Cs being higher or longevity of diabetes, big fluctuations, um, we typically will see fluid that builds up. What happens in these little capillaries is when they're stressed from sugars, let's say, or dietary issues, they will start to bulge. Those we call microaneurysms. We can see those in the retina. Uh, when your optometrist or ophthalmologist does a retinal evaluation. You may not have any symptoms, but they can see that. We now have great technology that has digital wide field technology that can pick these up and has been shown to be equal to a dilated fundus exam, hmm. but patients prefer it nine to one wow. because it doesn't require the dilation and the ill effects that way. So mm -hmm. really, really valuable. And I like that because patients can connect to their body. It's one thing for me to say, hey, Dr. David, you've got this change in your retina and you're trying to picture it. It's another thing for me to say, Dr. David, look right here. You mm. see this blood vessel that's swollen. If that swelling leads to it larger, eventually they break. Now we have a small little hemorrhage. Hemorrhages lead to fluid. When we start to develop fluid, it's like looking underwater. The number one cause for vision loss in patients with diabetes is fluid buildup, what we call macular edema. Unfortunately, mm. it tends to build up right in our central vision but it doesn't build up suddenly. So we don't go from seeing well to not seeing well. It's kind of a gradual percolation. And, and sometimes people can't notice that. So only an annual eye health and vision exam can really pick that up and assure you that you're safer at this point. You know, you mentioned these hemorrhages in the eye in people with diabetes. You mentioned these aneurysms or these ballooning out of the uh, small blood vessels. I know as a internal medicine specialist, you know, looking at the back of eyes, we often see this other pattern that we sometimes call neovascularization or new blood vessel formation. Is there an easy way to explain to patients why, I mean, that, that usually people say, oh, well, that sounds good if I've got new blood vessels forming on the back of my eye. How do you explain the development of that and why is that dangerous? That's a great question because that is a condition that can cause a sudden and devastating loss to vision. So let's talk about this continued rheostat, if you will. If I start to develop fluid, it's like being underwater. I mean, I don't breathe really well, right? So mm -hmm. I've cut down the oxygen. So the brain, in its infinite wisdom, says, hey, we need to get more oxygen. So I'm going to grow new blood vessels to provide more oxygen. Mm -hmm. The problem is the new blood vessels, the neovascularization, are very brittle, fragile blood vessels. They break very easily. 
And so when we see these new blood vessels forming, oftentimes they do one of two things. They suddenly will break and fill the eye with blood. Mm. That's not a good sign. Or number two, they're a little bit like elastic bands. They have the, they stick to all kinds of things. And so they stick to some of the fluids or to some of the structures in the eye, and then they contract. And so they can cause retinal detachments mm. or other problems. So the goal there is we want to avoid neovascularization at all costs. We want to avoid new blood vessels, even though you think more oxygen is good, those things growing, uh, we need to kind of weed eat and get rid of those weeds because they're not good things. Good news is, We've got therapies for those, and the therapies have really changed over time. Yeah, I know years ago they used to do a lot of laser treatments. I mean, presumably they still do some of that, but I know a lot of uh, folks have moved to getting these injections. Can you explain a little bit about the differences in those approaches? Yeah, absolutely will. Um, in the past, when we have found that new blood vessels are forming, we knew there was something that was secreted that caused more and more of this. We've termed that VEGF. I don't know who termed that, but that's what they call mm -hmm. it. So to fix that, we want to decrease the VEGF. How can we do that? Well, we can use laser around the outer part of the eye, not to affect your straight ahead vision necessarily right away, but, but if we're doing what we call panretinal, then we're basically killing enough retinal tissue that guess what? It's not secreting that VEGF anymore. Mm. But what are you left with? Well, you get side vision problems and that, and that retinal tissue is effectively dead. The great news is, and this is really research that's come from the macular degeneration side, which is macular degeneration also produces in the wet form blood vessels that are coming through the surface, secreting this VEGF. Mm. We now have medicines that are anti-VEGF anti injections. Now, nobody wants a shot in the eye, mm. but I'll tell you what, we now have on either a monthly basis, every two weeks, every two months, somewhere in that range, we have injections that can make these blood vessels go away and dry things up. Those started in macular degeneration, the trials went on in diabetes, and now instead of the laser, that's the number one way we treat new blood vessels in our diabetic patients is to give an anti-VEGF injection. Wow, well thanks for that explanation. So people shouldn't be afraid of an injection into the eye. I mean, that sounds really scary, I'm just being honest with you. Yeah, it really does, and yet I'm not gonna tell you it's something that you might choose to have, but I will tell you that people that get those regularly say, you know, it's really not that bad. It's not what I expected. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very small needle. And, um, and it's not going through the cornea where you have all the nerves. It's going through the white part. So, um, again, is it something you want to have? No. But if you are in that situation, we now have a life-saving treatment where before, you know, what you have is what you've got. I'm going to try to preserve it the best I can. This can actually involute these and return your vision to where it was. So what do we want to concentrate on? We don't want to get to that point. So keep your A1C as low as you can, below six, ideally, or wherever your internal medicine doctor wants you, at least below seven. Every point you can drop that has a significant impact on reducing your chances of the big three triad, the neuropathy of the nerves, the nephropathy of the kidneys, and the retinopathy of the retina. Secondly, regular eye health and vision exams so you can tell if something's going on, even though you might not be able to feel it. Thirdly, that's where we're watching for fluid. If we can minimize the fluid building up, we very, very seldom, remember 80% of people lose vision and diabetes, not from those new blood vessels, but from fluid building up. Mm -hmm. So if we minimize the fluid building up or can treat that, we also are lessening the chance of new blood vessels and needing a shot in the eye in the future. Eventually we'll probably have a pill, but we don't have that right now. 
So Jeff, you really emphasize the importance of prevention, people keeping on top of their eye health. Recommendation that uh, has been thrown out there for many years, at least an annual exam if everything's looking good. Is that still the best advice or do you recommend something different? People with diabetes, for sure. When we see people that have no changes on the retina and we see them back in a year, they have a 96 plus percent chance of not having a change in that year. That's why we feel comfortable. If we start to see early changes, depending upon you know what we're seeing and where we're seeing it, then it may be we're going to see you back in six months. If we start to see fluid buildup, that's where you mentioned earlier about optometry ophthalmology working together, uh, and both of the O's are important. Ophthalmology now is basically a surgical subspecialty, and by golly, I want them to be good in surgery. Optometry's grown to be more of kind of like you as an internal medicine doctor. You're a primary healthcare provider. I'm a primary eye care provider. If I need a specialist to treat with laser, if I need a specialist to give an anti-VEGF injection, if I need a specialist to take out your cataract, that's when I'm going to choose the right type of ophthalmologist. In this case, when we're talking about diabetes, we're talking about a retinologist, even more specialized in ophthalmology, somebody that just concentrates just on the, on the retina, if you will. Tremendous stuff. Well, Jeff, our uh, time has slipped away from us. I, I know some folks heard us mention in the previous segment, uh, the new book that you've got out. Why don't you mention that one more time, just a quick overview in about 15 seconds. Dr. DeRose, I really appreciate being on with you and the native population. One patient at a time, the K2 way for healthcare and business success. Patients deserve better care and it's to help doctors in their ability to provide it. Tremendous. And again, if you miss that website, it's theK2way.com. Jeff, thanks again for sharing your expertise uh, with me, with uh, my listeners. It's, it's been great to have you. Thank you. We'd be glad to do it anytime. And to each of you for joining us on today's edition, I'm Dr. David DeRose, as always, wishing you the very best of health. This is Life Talk Radio.